Now then, with a a view to God's help, let's uh, turn to the second passage that we read there in the Gospel according to John. And the healing of the nobleman's son. In verse 50, after Jesus says to him to go your way because your son lives, we read that, so the man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him. And again, after the son is healed, at the end of verse 53, in the last sentence, we read again concerning this man that he himself believed and his whole household. So he believed the word, and then again, he believed again in verse 53. So, with God's help, we look at uh, this man's faith. Now, after the unexpected detour that Christ took uh, through Samaria, he resumes his journey to Galilee, which of course is where he had set out for in the first place. But you remember that he had to go to Samaria to find this woman and indeed the rest of the people who came to faith in Sychar. Now we would normally expect him uh, to return to Nazareth and to begin his real Galilean ministry there, uh, but he doesn't. We're told here that he doesn't go to Nazareth because he testified that a prophet has no honor in his own country. So he went elsewhere to Galilee. Now, some people might think that it would be more natural to refer to Galilee as his own country than Nazareth. But if you look carefully at all the Gospels, you'll see that every reference to Jesus' own country is actually a reference to his hometown of Nazareth. That's because the word country has a a much wider application than we tend to use. We tend to speak of country very often in a sense equivalent to a nation. So we would say the country of Scotland or the nation of Scotland has been more or less the same thing, but of course they're not. I mean, we do in English use the word country in a narrower sense. For example, in England they may speak of people being from the West Country or being from the Black Country or something like that. Certainly in the Gaelic language we use it in a very narrow sense. In Gaelic the word is Dury. And um, let's say for example I was from the West Side. Let's say I decided after a few years to return to the West Side. You would say, well, back to his own country. It's just a reference simply to the West Side. In the Bible, it's very clear that his own country is simply Nazareth. And here the Lord does not choose to go to Nazareth because he says himself that a prophet has no honor in his own country. Uh, So he avoided it. Now, that doesn't mean that he didn't go there at all. Uh, What it does mean is that he preached pretty much everywhere else in Galilee before he went to his own hometown. Now, there may be several lessons to draw from that. 
Um, certainly tonight I think it would be good for us to look at his visit to Nazareth and how he received no honour there. But it's interesting that the Lord did not go first where he knew he would be rejected. So he went instead to the wider area of Galilee. And um, there we're told that the people received him. In verse 45, when he came to Galilee, the Galileans received him, having seen all the things that he did in Jerusalem at the feast, for they had also gone to the feast. And you'll remember in his first visit there uh, to Jerusalem, he performed signs and wonders. These were the things that had spoken so powerfully, for example, to Nicodemus and others who had seen them. Now, some of the Galileans had witnessed these things, brought word back north, and the place was ready to receive Jesus when he came, particularly this village of Cana, which was the only Galilean village to have witnessed a miracle, the first miracle that he performed when he turned the water into wine. So interestingly, the Lord went first to the place that was most likely to be receptive to his word. And an example of this kind of reception comes before us here in the nobleman who has a sick son. Now the word nobleman in the Greek language means a courtier or actually a member of the royal household. Not necessarily a member of the royal family, in fact not at all that, but a royal official. Now, someone with high responsibility in the royal household. Now, when I say royal household, Herod uh, Antipas, the tetrarch of Galilee, was not, strictly speaking, a king. His father was Herod the Great. He was a genuine king of Judea. But by this time, matters had changed in the Roman provinces and in the Roman administration, and Herod is just a tetrarch. But because of his father, and because of the reluctance of the Jewish people to accept that their sovereignty was coming to an end, they would still refer to him as a king. And they would refer to his government, stationed in Capernaum, as a kind of royal household. So this man is effectively a, a royal courtier, a government official in the royal household. Now, like the man we saw last Sunday night, he's not coming to Christ for himself. He's coming to Christ for his sick son. And I did mention this on Sunday night, but it is worth just emphasizing how often people are coming to the Lord for their families. And on all these occasions, the Lord is dealing with the parents themselves before he deals with their families. Invariably, I think I can say, that is the rule. Dealing with themselves first, and then their families. There are many people who weep for their families and the Lord would say to them what he said to the daughters of Jerusalem who were crying for himself when he was about to be crucified. He turned to them and said, Daughters of Jerusalem, don't weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. So here's another of these coming for help for his son who is sick and we are told at death's door. Now the man is in Cana, a 
I suppose she could wonder if he was there on business, but I think it's more natural to assume that he's not. He has heard of Christ. He has heard that he has returned to Galilee. He has a reputation for signs and wonders, for healings, curing the blind, healing the lame, casting out evil spirits. And he heard that he was in Cana, which is just less than 20 miles away. Now Capernaum, where he lives himself, is the administrative centre of Galilee. Uh, just like Stornoway is to Lewis, Capernaum is the main place in Galilee. That's where he lives and works. But he hears that Christ is 20 miles away, and the case is desperate because, as the language conveys very clearly, his son is at death's door. So he comes to Christ, finds him, comes to him, and he implores him to come down with him to Capernaum and to heal his son. Now, in one way it's an obvious thing, but in another way maybe not so, because we sometimes think that the people who are best off in this world with the best jobs and the most money are the most content and most satisfied people. Even though pretty much all of us know that it's probably not really like that, it's amazing how often this little voice tells you that that's the way it is. And perhaps you yourself would be just happier. You'd be content if you had the big job and if you had lots of money. This man obviously had a very good job and he had very significant wealth. We're told that when he arrived home it wasn't his servant singular that met him but his servants plural. So he's doing well. There's no doubt about that. But wealth and status uh, can only do so, so much and sometimes in fact they work against you and not for you. Uh, wealth brings <coughs> its own burdens and its cares. I know that it can alleviate poverty or alleviate debt, but it's amazing the amount of wealth and the amount of care and burdens that wealth can actually bring into a person's life. It can add worry. It can even bring lots of insincere friends into your circle, and that in itself can wreak havoc later on. And at a spiritual level, because wealth tends to lead to self-reliance, it also, sad to say, very often leads to a lost eternity. Our Lord himself taught on more than one occasion that it is difficult for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. So, this is a man who has status, wealth, and servants, but it doesn't spare his household from disease and from death. So these things are simple reminders to us just to remember what matters in life. What really does matter in life. And it's not money. It's not money. Now just as we saw on Sunday night in connection with a man who had a, a son with a, an evil spirit, Christ responds to this man in a very surprising way. The man just makes what appears to be a simple request for Christ to come down to Capernaum and to heal his son who's dying. Jesus says, verse 48, unless 
you people see signs and wonders, you will by no means believe. The word people here is in italics because the you is plural. So the word people is, is put in there to understand that Christ is not just talking to the man, he's talking to others too, but inclusive of the man. Unless you and you people generally see signs and wonders, you will by no means believe. Now, to know why Christ said that, it's important for us to understand as John tells us in chapter 2 that our Lord knew what was in man. I mean, this, this man in front of Christ was like an open book for him to read. He knows exactly what the man is really thinking and feeling. So it's when he looks into his heart effectively that he answers like this. And this is the kind of answer he gives because he sees his heart. And he knows what he's thinking, feeling and believing. But I suppose for us the question is what is it that the Lord sees? I remember last Sunday highlighting the important difference between a believer who's struggling with unbelief and an unbeliever who's got a certain kind of faith. They're two very different people. One's an heir of heaven and the other's an heir of hell. There's a universe of a difference between them spiritually. But in some respects, of course, they must be quite alike. The believer who is struggling with his unbelief and the unbeliever who possesses, nonetheless, a certain kind of faith. So it's not really easy to tell. And I think when we meet this man here and hear Christ's response to him, it's not easy to tell what exactly he is. Is he a believer with very weak faith that the Lord is bringing on, or is he an unbeliever that is looking to Christ nonetheless as a kind of wonder worker, a miracle worker, someone who can do an amazing thing in his own home? And family. At one level, you could say that he could be either. Take, for example, a believer with weak faith. This is someone who has undoubtedly, obviously, heard of Christ, and I think we could assume too that he has heard the message of Christ. But he is not sure regarding who exactly he is. Is he a prophet? Is he the prophet? Already murmurings are arising in some quarters that the work he does, he does by the power of the devil. Which power does he have? Could he be the Messiah of God? Well, it would help him if he could see signs. And for him, the best sign that he could see would be the healing of his own son and if he could have his own son healed well he would certainly believe now I don't know if the man himself would put it like that but Christ is effectively hearing him saying I have heard you and I am impressed with your person and with what you do but I will only believe if you do this a bit like Thomas uh, after the resurrection of course Thomas was not believing in the resurrection and he was very emphatically not believing in the resurrection to the point where he said that unless I see in his hands 
the print of his nails and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. You'll notice even the way he puts it. He doesn't even say that I will believe if I see this and this or do this and this, but unless I see this and this and do this and this, I will not believe. It's amazing how strong unbelief can be in the believer. That was unbelief in a believer. And it's amazing how strong it was. And again, you see weakness in his faith. If he has it at all, I'll come to that in a second. But you see weakness in it in the way that he ties the power of Christ to his physical presence. As though he can't do anything unless he is physically there. Come down, he says in verse 47. Come down and heal my son. And when Christ says to him, unless you see signs and wonders, you won't believe, he repeats the request. Verse 49, Sir, he says, there's respect there, come down before my child dies. He's not the only one to tie Christ's power to his physical presence. Uh, Jairus, the church elder in Capernaum, probably himself a preacher, asked him to come back to his house and to lay hands on his daughter so that she would live. The woman who was hemorrhaging blood badly for 12 years so that her actual life was effectively seeping away, she said, if I could just touch the hem of his garment, I shall be made whole. She thought touch was necessary too. Even Martha, even Martha, after her brother Lazarus had passed away and Christ was not there, because Christ chose to be not there, and he chose to be not there because he had something particular to teach by not being there, Martha said to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Very interesting statement might mean uh, or it might imply one or two other things as a globally but you'll notice that he, she says if you have been here my brother would not have died these things are limiting Christ they wouldn't have maybe realized that when they said them but these things are limiting Christ and they are robbing him of his glory um, how different the Roman centurion Every time you see a Roman centurion in the New Testament, amazingly, it is a positive thing. The Roman centurion was himself stationed at Capernaum, 20 miles away. He had a servant uh, who was sick at the point of death. He sent word um, for Christ, and uh, he discovered that Christ was coming to his house, and he, and he came out of his house and met Christ and said, I'm not worthy that you should come under my roof. Just speak, and it shall be done. Uh, the Lord turned round and he said, I have not found faith like this in Israel. An astonishing confession of faith and an astonishing benediction upon his confession. And the nurse of Roman centurion said, I don't need you to come into this house. It's enough for you to speak and it'll happen. 
no conception there whatsoever of the necessity of presence or of the necessity of physical contact, touch, laying on of hands. I know who you are. As the Holy One of Israel, speak and it shall be done without delay. The same word that brought the heavens and the earth into being is the word I need to hear and my son or my servant shall be healed. But here it's come down to Capernaum and come down before my child dies. So it's possibly weak faith. But maybe it's also the case that he doesn't really at this point have any faith at all yet or at least not a same faith. He's got enough to ask Christ for something but not enough to really understand on what basis Christ would help them. In other words, he doesn't really have a proper grasp of who Christ is and what Christ is really concerned to do, i.e. save souls, bring them to faith and to life, into a relationship with himself and into a relationship with God. In other words, he simply has heard, or he's heard simply, that here is someone who can heal Doubtless it's the power of God that enables him to do that, but what that means in connection with who Christ is doesn't really matter to him at this point, perhaps. All that matters is he's got a sick son, a dying son, and he needs that son to live. But him, maybe Christ is just a wonder worker who can heal his family. But isn't that how many people's journey to Christ begins? Mm -hmm. Not everyone needs to begin by making a statement of faith. Some people just begin by making a contact. By the time that contact is finished, they begin to understand who he is, but not at the beginning. It's interesting that Christ does help this man. And uh, even if he has no faith at the beginning, Christ still meets him at the point of his need and brings him to a point of faith. Now, I'm conscious some people would say, well, surely if he had no faith, he wouldn't answer his request. But it's not as simple as that. The fact that Christ interacts with them is with a view to bringing him to faith. Some say that God never answers a request that um, an unbeliever asks in prayer. And they quote a text to that effect which, which says that God does not hear sinners. Now that is undoubtedly true, but we have to watch how we understand that text. What that text means is that the worship and the praise that an unbeliever offers is not received in the sense that it comes from an unclean, an impure, and an unbelieving heart. It's just offered out of maybe habit or something of that kind. It doesn't mean that God is not free to answer someone's request, even while they are still in a state of unbelief. It's obvious that God is free and sovereign to answer any prayer he wishes to answer, whether the person who asks it is a believer or not. I don't really see how anyone can think otherwise. Uh, who is the biggest unbeliever in the universe? We would have to say it was Satan. Are his requests answered? Yes, sometimes they are. Did Satan not ask for specific permission to assault Job? 
to assault his resources, his family and his self? Yes. Did God grant him his request? Yes. Did Satan ask permission to sift the disciples like wheat? Yes. Did God give Satan permission to sift the disciples as wheat? Yes, he did. So on what basis do we conclude that just because someone comes up to Christ without a real conception exactly of who Christ is and makes a request, why should we think that God shouldn't entertain that or even answer that at that point? God is free to do absolutely what he pleases. Let, let me just qualify or further explain that. I don't mean by that that God is covenantally bound to answer these things. God is covenantally bound to answer his people's prayers. There's a relationship established there. Father-son relationship or father-daughter relationship. And when that relationship is established, God is speaking respectfully. He is bound to answer our prayers. Not necessarily give us what we ask for, but bound to answer them nonetheless. But he's free to answer and to deal with any request that comes to him. And uh, we, we sometimes see that kind of thing happening. Um, for example, you know, when a person is sick, maybe in hospital or something of that kind, uh, they say, well, Lord, help me, or Lord, save me, or Lord, make me better. And there's usually a kind of promise accompanying it, which says that I'm not going to live this way anymore. My life's going to change, and I'm going to turn around, and I'm, I'm going to serve you as the Lord. And the Lord answers that prayer. And the answer of that prayer is a test effect. It becomes a test. I've done that for you. I, I've given you what you asked for. And it, it needn't be sickness or hospital or anything like that, but there may just have been a time in your life where you asked God for something or to keep something away and he gave you that thing or kept that thing away. But you have not kept the side of the bargain. And that will rise up against you on the day of judgment. That God had mercy and God gave you time and God gave you space and God showed you kindness but you did not respond in turn. So it's hard to say at the point of coming whether this man has weak faith or really no faith at all. But either way, what we need to note is how Christ deals with them. He effectively tests them to see what he is made of. If the faith is there, Christ will refine it and purify it. If it's not there, it's his Father's will that it should appear because there's no doubt that this man leaves the encounter a believer. In other words, Christ is going to bring him to the place where this man will realize who exactly he's dealing with and the importance of implicitly taking him at his word because it is taking Christ as it were, at his word that saves the soul. You can't receive Christ without receiving his word. You can't receive him as a saviour without receiving him as a lord. You can't receive him as someone who heals the sick in your family without receiving him as someone who is Lord of your life. 
He may do these things for you, but he will never be your saviour unless this relationship is established between you and him and it hangs on his word. Faith. Faith in his word. Believing him to be the one who changes not and never lies. So to test him in that way, Christ simply says to him, Go home, your child lives. In other words, don't ask me any more questions. Don't ask me a third time to go to Capernaum. Don't limit me with these limitations. Simply trust. That's what I'm setting before you. Trust, believe, turn around, go back home, and believe that when you arrive there after your 20-mile journey tomorrow, you will find the child alive. It's similar in a way to the test that we read of in Luke chapter 17, where the ten lepers come to Christ for healing. And the Lord heals them in almost an unusual way. He doesn't actually heal them there and then at all. What he tells them to do is to turn around and to go and show themselves to the priests. Now, if you read the process for a leper's cleansing, um, the last part of the leper's cleansing was to go to a priest who, who doubled up in medicinal matters too, to go to a priest for a thorough inspection of the skin to see whether they were actually healed and therefore able to be restored into society. In other words, you only went to the priest when you thought you were free of the thing. And here are these ten men who are very obviously lepers, and instead of healing them, Christ says, go back to the priests. Believe that by the time you reach them, you will be cleansed and pronounced clean. The test of faith We're told, of course, that the ten were cleansed. Only came one came back to, to give thanks and to glorify God, who was, interestingly, a Samaritan. But it's the same kind of idea. Believe and obey, and you will be healed. Now, in a way, that wasn't easy for the man, uh, Christ was his last hope and he was his only hope. And if he was going to look at this kind of thing in any other way other than faith, it would be it would be saying, right, uh, I am losing the contact that I think is so important here. I, I can't see for myself how this man can do anything without a rod in his hand or without some kind of badge of authority or um, laying his hands on somebody. I can't see it. I can't understand it. Is he asking me to believe that just by speaking here he can effect a cure 20 miles away in Capernaum? I, 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 I've seen people maybe do wonderful things and I, I maybe can believe that people have a certain kind of power to heal the sick. I don't know. But is he asking me to believe that he can do this? Well, of course he is. Asking him to believe exactly that. And he has to let go of the Lord and to walk away. And to start a difficult 20 mile journey. And the devil telling him in one year 
that he's going to find a dead son. But a word in this other ear saying that this man can help. If this man says that my son will live, then my son will live. And in letting go of sight, he's embracing faith. And that's why it says in verse 50, when Jesus said to him, Go your way, your son lives. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him. And he went his way. And yes, he went his way saying, I believe. Help, Lord, my unbelief. I believe, Lord, help my unbelief. Now, Christ is dealing with him this way because of the importance of faith and because of the importance of the Word of God in connection with faith. You see, it's always going to depend on the Word of God. That's why he said to Thomas, because you have seen, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. It's always, this relationship between us and God through Christ is always established at the level of faith in the Word. Not by sights and signs, but by faith in the Word. And that's really where he's bringing the man here. That's where he's bringing you to. It's possible for you to ask for signs too. Well, the Bible tells you you're not really going to get any. John 21 tells you that all your signs are in the Bible here. Uh, and God isn't just going to perform for your expectations like that. He's not going to do it. If you say to God, well, if you do this, I'll believe in you, don't be surprised if it's not done, because he doesn't work like that. Uh, as Jesus said, um, the rich man in hell said, let me go back and speak to my brothers about the reality of this place called hell. And Jesus said, they are Moses and the prophets. They've got the Bible. If they don't believe in the Bible, neither will they believe if, if, if Lazarus were to come back from the dead. And the same is true now. You have Moses and the prophets. You have the word of God, which is what Christ expects us to believe. Now, if, if you come to Christ and you say, well, I believe then and help my unbelief. I, I believe. You say to me that if I lay hold of you now by faith, if I accept your sovereignty, your lordship, and your power to save my soul, you say to me that then I am saved. What's my duty? Believe it. What would it mean if you just came back and said the same thing again, Lord? If you ask for something again, it, it would mean you're not really believing it. The, the mark of believing it is accepting it and living your life as a Christian man or woman, stepping out and following the Lord. And as long as you don't do that, well, that's your evidence that you still haven't accepted it. Obviously, who is it that believes in the Lord Jesus Christ? The person who takes that cross and follows him. Who is it that doesn't? The person who doesn't. By the fruits you shall know them. By the grace of God this man turned around and walked home with nothing but faith 
in the Word of God. And that's exactly where Christ wanted him to be. Exactly where he wanted him to be. It might have been a very difficult journey. At every point he might have been saying, is this really going to happen? But he simply believes. And on the following morning, when he arrives home, his servants are obviously looking out for him, probably expecting him or hoping that he might return with the Saviour. Maybe initially, well, let's just leave that, but in any case, they're expecting him to come, they see him coming, and they go out to meet him with good news that your son lives. Your son lives. And the man says, when did he get better? Literally, when did he begin to get better? Their response is, yesterday at one o'clock, the fever left him. The Greek tense there has left him completely. When? Didn't begin, he didn't begin to get better. It was just all sorted. He suddenly that changed from a sick boy to a healthy boy. And of course the man does the maths. He knows that at the seventh hour yesterday, one o'clock in the afternoon, was exactly the time that he spoke with Christ. Exactly the time when the Lord uttered the words, Your son lives. And again we're told in verse 53 that he himself believed. Um, Faith is a thing that grows. Real faith, even when it comes, is a thing that's still able to grow. For example, the disciples believed in him. But you remember after the first miracle in Cana, if you just go back a couple of uh, pages in the, in the Bible, you remember after the first miracle, in verse 11, chapter 2 and verse 11, this beginning of signs, that's turning the water into the wine, Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. His disciples believed in him. Now obviously they already believed. This simply means that their faith was confirmed. Their faith grew. Same was true of this man. Because he had taken Christ at his word, he then saw the work of God and his faith was confirmed. I keep coming back to this. I think I mentioned it on Sunday. If I, if I didn't mention maybe on one or two other occasions as well during the communion, that's always the order. Faith first. Faith first. Obedience. And then your signs and your seals. That's the order. It's not signs and seals and then faith and obedience. Faith, obedience, and if you like, confirmation. The Lord does wonderful things for those who take him at his word and obey. And that's exactly what happens to this man. And when I say his faith was confirmed, well it is enlarged because the thing that he had believed, the the power of this man to heal at a distance is something that now grows. He begins to understand who this man really, really is as the Messiah, the Son of God, the God who is able at his very breath in his word to bring life from death and to call things which are not 
as though they are. And Christ, my friend, can heal you at a distance too. The, the Saviour that I am preaching to you this morning, at, in one respect is far away, in the Gospel he is very near, and if you call upon him, he will speak the word, and your soul shall be healed. I want you to just notice in conclusion that it's not just himself who believes, but his household at the end of verse 53. And he himself believed and his whole household. I'm sure you've noticed, it, it often happens when faith comes into a family that it starts to work its way through the family. Now, that can take a long time. And in fact, sometimes it meets with serious opposition before it works through the family. But you'll just notice in God's covenantal mercy so often a faith that begins in a household works through a household. Here it works very, very quickly. And what struck me in reading it was just how quickly this house's situation changed. I mean, yesterday, the previous day, early in the morning, you've got a man whose house is full of death there's no believer in it. And he's setting out on, on some kind of effort to get somebody to come home to heal his son. By the time the next day has come, he's believing himself. His son has been restored to health and is a believer in Christ. And his wife is a believer in Christ too. What a change in a house. Just like that, by the power of God. I wonder if the mother of this child is the wife of Herod's steward. I, I just wonder if she was. We're told that of the group of women that were ministering to the Lord later after he had chosen his twelve apostles, there's a select group of women, and one of them is Joanna, who is the wife of Herod's steward, obviously from Capernaum. I wonder if it's this boy's mother. I mean, we're not told, but it wouldn't be difficult to believe. The reason it's not difficult to believe is because she would be more free than other women perhaps to perform that kind of duty, but also because when your heart is full of gratitude to God for something wonderful that God does for yourself or for your family, you can't do enough back for God. Can't do enough back. And the, the, the kindness and the mercy and the love that you show for the Lord and his people is, is an in indicator of the extent to which you yourself are aware of the love and the kindness and the mercy of goodness of God and goodness of God for yourself. Like uh, Naaman, this, the leper, when he was healed of his leprosy, he just, he just couldn't do enough for the people who had helped him find the way to salvation for his own soul. So that was our reception in Cana of Galilee. After working his way through the synagogue's preaching, he then comes to Nazareth. And uh, God willing, we'll see what that meant for him tonight. Let us pray. <coughs> oh Lord, we are uh, thankful indeed that our Saviour is uh, still able to heal at a distance that even enthroned at your right hand in glory, he can speak the word, and it shall be done without delay.
and at his command and will a heart will be renewed and the storm there can be changed into a calm. O great a God, O great a Saviour, and may we all know that we can find him just by laying hold of him and taking him at his word. In his name we pray. Amen. Our last singing is Psalm 103. Psalm 103 and the opening stanzas that we're so familiar with. God the Lord, and all that in me is be stirred up, his holy name to magnify and bless. Bless, O my soul, the Lord thy God, and not forgetful be of all his gracious benefits he hath bestowed on thee, all thine iniquities who doth most graciously forgive, who thy diseases all and pains doth heal and thee. Really, these opening three stanzas to God's praise. Let's stand to sing.